Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. So this last week, Wendy and I heard a speaker, Priscilla Shire, talk about her five-year-old son, her oldest son, who lost his first tooth. He was so excited because the tooth fairy was going to come, and he was told that he would get treasure under his pillow. So her son excitedly that night put the tooth under the pillow, and he struggled to get to sleep. So it wasn't until 3 a.m. that her husband felt like he was solidly enough asleep that he could actually go in and put the treasure under his pillow. Morning came, and she knew exactly when her son woke up because there was jumping and shouting and screaming and everything upstairs, and he ran downstairs with two fistfuls, and he said, Look, Mom! And he showed her that he got a bag of gummy bears, his favorite snack. And then he opens the other one and he says, and I got this too. And it was a $5 bill. Priscilla looked at her husband and said, oh, no, you didn't. $5 for a tooth? What are you thinking of? So he pulled his wife aside and out of earshot said to her this. He said, do you remember when our son got all those birthday cards with $5 in them last month and we kept putting them in the birthday drawer for safekeeping? I just took one of those and I put it under his pillow. And she smiled and said, Dave Ramsey would be so proud of you because you just showed such good stewardship and restraint. And then she said, I got to watch my son be so excited about a treasure that he really already was his. He already had it. Regardless of how you feel about the tooth fairy or the fact that the, son, the dad stole, stole the money from the son, this story illustrates a real truth about our faith. That it's not always looking under a pillow for new treasures, but it's actually pulling out the drawer and receiving the treasure that is already yours. That's been the main point of this series, the Come Holy Spirit. We're not always aware of the fullness of the treasure we've been given by the Holy Spirit. We're not aware of the fullness of why Jesus said on that final night before the cross, I'm going away, but I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, and that's going to be better for you than with me being face to face with you. So one of the ways we've been trying to understand more fully this treasure of the Holy Spirit is to look at images the Bible uses about the Holy Spirit. We've talked about water, we've talked about breath, and we're going to talk about the last image today. We're going to talk other things about the Holy Spirit in the coming weeks, but we're going to deal with the last metaphor today as a dove. Again, we want to thank Tyler Statton and the Bible Project and Ray Vanderland for some excellent resources. If you want to go study those guys, they've got some further resources on this, and they really helped us uh, frame how this message could be shared today. We begin with Jesus before his ministry began at his baptism. The medical doctor and gospel writer Luke shares this. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And he was praying, and heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. So here we have the symbol of a dove. Why would Luke use this reference? I mean, Luke is a medical doctor. He's not a poet. If you read all of Luke's writings, he's very fact-based and to the point. 
So he's not trying to be esoteric or mystical in this explanation. And if you look further, all of the Gospels use the same exact phrase. The Holy Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove when describing Jesus' baptism. Why is that? To understand the fullness of what these words mean, and we have to go one last time, I know we've been doing this a lot, back to the beginning, Genesis 1. We'll read it again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. This word hovering refers to the image of a bird hovering whose wings are powerfully protecting and guiding. The same word is used in Deuteronomy when describing how God guards and cares for his people. It says, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, its wings. After Genesis, we see the dove yet again in the story of Noah's ark and the flood, a story which is all about recreation. In order to protect humankind, God judges creation for its sin and then recreates it all over again. We can miss the recreation element of this story when we just look at it from a judgment perspective. So let's ask, why did God choose to judge the earth through a flood? Why not meteors crashing down from heaven or an earthquake or a plague? God used water because he's returning things to the state they were before creation, in in the creation in Genesis 1, where the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In the flood, we see creation dying under the chaotic waters and then rising again, renewed, recreated in this story of Noah. We see God confirming creation's readiness for life again through a dove. God was returning things back to the way they were before he spoke light and life into creation, which means the story of the flood is not just about judgment. It's about recreation. After the flood, while waiting, Noah sends a dove out to look for land, and it returns on like its second try with an olive branch in its beak, letting him know that there was life again, and they could begin life again. Fast forward to Jesus' day. The Jews had the Hebrew Scriptures and something called the Talmud, which was the official commentary of the Scriptures that the Jews would have known well. And when you read Genesis 1 from the Talmud, it brings back the image of a hovering bird and reads like this. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters like a dove. The Jewish Gospel writers know their Scriptures including the Talmud. So listen for similarities with the water and the hovering dove as Jesus is baptized by his cousin John on the Jordan River. It says, When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too, and he was praying, and heaven was opened, and the Spirit of the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now, those who had gathered on the shores, who were gathered on the shores those day of the Jordan River, must have been overwhelmed. They would have not have missed this symbolism. The picture of God creating. The striking similarity of Jesus' baptism and the creation of the world would have been evident. Like a dove, the Holy Spirit was resting upon Jesus, the Messiah, to usher in a new kingdom. 
the one who would restore the whole cosmos, the one who will make all things right one day. This same Holy Spirit who spread wings over chaos like a dove has now come upon Jesus who will go on to display the creative miracle-working power of the Holy Spirit. After Jesus' baptism, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. At his weakest moment, Satan comes to tempt him, and Jesus resists that temptation, staying faithful by remembering and stating the word of God. And then after coming out of the wilderness, it says Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. And Jesus walks into a synagogue immediately on returning on the Sabbath, takes the scroll and reads Isaiah's prophecy from chapter 61 where it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. This anointed one means Messiah, the one forever anointed by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus was baptized. Let's review. Jesus was baptized, and the Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove, where he is full of the Holy Spirit. He is then led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit for 40 days and was tempted. But then he returned into Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is central to the story, emphasized over and over and over again. The power displayed through Jesus came when the Spirit rested upon him. So when Jesus proclaims Isaiah 61, he's saying that his power comes from the Holy Spirit that is upon him now. This is when everything started happening, after the Holy Spirit was upon him. That's when we see Jesus start doing all kinds of miracles, after the Holy Spirit comes and rests upon him. Now, there are two main ways people understand the miracle stories in the Bible. The first way is that miracles were done to prove Jesus was God. And that's been actually kind of the predominant view and understanding for the last 300 years. And yet it wasn't a primary common belief in the early church. So where did this current belief originate? Well, before the Enlightenment, most people had a more spiritual worldview than they do today. So when they saw, for example, the sunrise in the morning, people would often respond that God had made another new day. Well, since the Enlightenment, we can explain more fully the science behind how the sun comes up, how this ball of matter called Earth that we live on spins at about 1,037 miles per hour and goes through its orbit at about 67,000 miles per hour around the sun. And there's a whole lot more, but it's way beyond my pay grade to try to explain that. The point is, science with all of the good and value it has brought, and it has brought a lot of good, has also birthed a more secular worldview where people started separating natural and supernatural. In the mix, the belief that there is a God began to get discarded by many, leading many to think God's not that involved with our lives because even if God created the world, he left it to be run by natural scientific laws. That's actually deism. That's where deism arose, emerged as a popular option between Christianity and atheism. Thomas Jefferson was a deist. He made his own Bible where he literally took a razor and cut out all the miracle stories from the Bible. 
In response to this push to discard God and miracles, Christians would say, you can't leave out the miracle stories because the miracle stories are proof that Jesus is God. Now, there's definite truth in that. These miracle stories did show that Jesus was God, but there are some problems to this idea as well. For, all, for, for example, all kinds of people did miracles in the Bible. I mean, Moses participated with God in the ten plagues and parting the Red Sea. Elijah healed the sick and raised the child from the dead, and many others performed miracles, and yet they never claimed to be the Messiah. Second, after Jesus, people do all kinds of supernatural things, but don't say they are God even after Jesus. We continue to see miracles through every generation throughout history up until today. Historically, the belief that Jesus did miracles to prove his identity is not the view of the early church, not the primary view. This was a reaction in the last 300 years to defend against deism and the rise of materialism and atheism. What we see in the Bible is the authors of the Gospels say that the miracles of Jesus were signs of the kingdom of God breaking in. In other words, God's reign being experienced and seen and known on the earth as part of him showing up and his, him affirming his promise that one day everything will be set right. And Jesus describes the kingdom as looking like good news for the poor, freedom for the oppressed, sight for the blind. Jesus, the king, ushered in the kingdom of God. And he did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus lived 30 years on earth before he started doing his ministry and before he was baptized. During that time, he didn't teach, he didn't do a miracle. But after the baptism and the Holy Spirit descended upon him, Jesus is teaching and working miracles and calling people to follow him, and they were responding in droves. It was the Holy Spirit coming upon him that started it all. Actually, one of the reasons why the Gnostic Gospels, these pseudo-biographies of Jesus, like the Gospel of Thomas and others, are not part of the Bible and are considered to be fiction is because they often tell stories of Jesus using his miraculous powers as a boy for his own entertainment. And the early church fathers who were near enough to Jesus' life to remember the eyewitness people and their accounts said this was not true. Jesus did not start doing miracles until after his baptism when he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. Luke shares what Jesus living with the power of the Holy Spirit looked like. He says, You know that what was, has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. Jesus was changed with the power of the Holy Spirit. And what happened to Jesus is what's intended to happen to us. This is why Jesus said, It is better for me to go away and for me to send the Holy Spirit to dwell in you and be with you. And this is the reason. It is so central for us as followers of Jesus to know the Holy Spirit. What we see in Jesus started something that doesn't stop with him. 
Jesus shows us what it looks like when someone is anointed with the Spirit of God. If you remember from our first message, Jesus showed us how we can tabernacle, we can have the presence of God in our tent, our, our, our physical being as a tabernacle, as a temple to him. Jesus let the Holy Spirit inhabit him fully. Making oneself God's habitation speaks to us making room for God, us giving place to him, being with him, being attentive to his presence with us constantly. It's this idea of inhabitation. There's a real closeness, a connection, and a freedom in relationship with the Holy Spirit that we want and need to have. A living, breathing, walking, talking tabernacle is who of the Holy Spirit is who each and every one of us as a follower of Jesus is to be. A picture of this kind of habitation is actually seen in Moses. Remember Moses breaking into spontaneous song after the Spirit blows wind and the parts of the Red Sea so that Israel could become freed from their oppressors? In this song, Moses says something that we may not catch at first. Let's read it and then I'll explain it. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. Now, there are a lot of words in Hebrew that describe worship of God. And in English, most of them get translated as this word praise. One of the many Hebrew words translated as praise is nava. It's the one that's here, which can mean to make a habitation or a home. The King James Version actually, I think, translates it best. It says, I will, instead of I will praise him, it says, I will prepare him a habitation to be with me and be around me and be a part of my life all the time. What greater praise could we give God than to make a habitation for him? Meaning, I will worship God and make room for him and make space for God to come and dwell in me. Moses navad and welcomed and made room to honor and praise God. Jesus navad the Holy Spirit, making space for the Spirit of God to dwell in him fully, showing, allowing the Spirit to express himself fully through Jesus. So, but what does that look like for us to make room, to make space for the Holy Spirit to inhabit us and express himself through us? Luke tells us in his sequel to the Gospel, the book of Acts, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And I know we've read this before, but hang on. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. All of them. Every single one of the followers of Jesus, it says, were filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice these tongues of fire that rest and hover on each person, reminding us of the Spirit hovering, resting over creation. And now how the Holy Spirit desires to hover over each and every one of us. Throughout the rest of Acts, we see ordinary people doing the same stuff Jesus did in the power of the Holy Spirit. We see Peter empowered by the Spirit to stand up to religious leaders with great wisdom when he had previously hidden from them in fear. We see Philip go to meet a eunuch from Africa along a road and he explains the Old Testament prophecy about, about Jesus leading to this guy getting baptized and then Philip is teleported out to a different city by the Spirit. 
Paul casts out a demon from a young woman who's been sexually uh, exploited and trafficked. And, and Jesus' followers have words of knowledge they could not have known but for God speaking that led to racial and social barriers being dropped and healings happening. Ordinary followers of Jesus have extraordinary love and compassion, becoming the church by taking care of those who have physical needs, emotional needs, and financial needs. The kingdom of God continues to break in, bringing good news to the poor, proclaiming freedom to the captive, and sight to the blind, spiritually, physically, emotionally, and every other way. And Luke says, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all, that there were no needy persons among them. The Apostle Paul reinforces how important the Holy Spirit is and what he does, saying this, And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, which is, you know, a question that the obvious answer is yes, if you're a follower of Jesus. If he's living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. These early followers received the Holy Spirit. They believed the Holy Spirit was living in them and they let the Holy Spirit make a home in them and work through them. Have you ever looked at the last words of Acts? Literary-wise, it's written in a way that gives you the sense that it doesn't end. And scholars actually think, and many scholars think that it was done intentionally because the book of Acts is not ended. God is still writing the book through you and I today. Because Jesus said, and we've read this before, but we need to get it into our hearts and our minds. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Who does the greater things? Whoever. Whoever believes in Jesus. I mean, maybe you don't buy into that truth of whoever. But as we close, I want to revisit a story everyone knows. Charles Dickens called it the finest short story ever written. We call it the prodigal son. A son leaves his dad and all, and all of his family and takes all of his inheritance. And then in one crazy, wild gap year, this son throws it all away, ending up destitute and hungry, eating in the dirt with pigs. After hitting absolute bottom, he decides to go back home. And you find him in the story rehearsing how he can apologize to his dad for what he's done, thinking, I could never, ever be considered a son again. Not after what I've done. But maybe he would let me be a hired hand. And Jesus continued to share the story. He says, but while he, talking about this self-focused, rejecting son, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. That is what God is like. He is that good. He is that 
forgiving. He wants to be in relationship with you that much. But I've left a part of the story out. While the son was telling the father, I've sinned against you, I don't deserve to be called your son ever again, the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. These are gifts that symbolize authority that the father gives his son as an heir, not a servant. And they celebrate. Aren't so many of us too often in our thinking like the prodigal son? We choose Jesus. We want to follow him. But we don't think we deserve to really be his kids. And we definitely don't deserve to be his heirs. And we definitely don't deserve any gifts. And even if we take the gifts that God gives us, we may feel we are not worthy and we are not qualified, so we keep them tucked away in a drawer somewhere. We don't wear the ring, the robe, and the sandals. We leave them in a drawer. We know we're forgiven, but we don't believe we're heirs. We don't believe we have been given authority to help bring the kingdom of God here on earth. And honestly, that thinking grieves God so much for him to give us these gifts and we don't pursue them and we don't use them and we don't learn how to use them. We don't really know him. We don't trust how good he is. And not receiving these gifts is dangerous to the church because when we don't walk in the fullness of how God intends for us to live, others pay the consequence. We may feel more comfortable receiving the forgiveness of God, but not his gifts of grace and power and authority and healing and justice and hope and to bring salvation to people around us, the gifts of his spirit. The truth is, like the prodigal, we can never earn the gifts. We don't deserve them. So we hesitate to embrace God's gifts. We think, I've got so much work to do in my life before I can ever be used by God. If you only knew me, if you really knew me, you'd know God couldn't and wouldn't want to use me. And that's shame talking. Not God. Because God is inviting you to participate with his spirit. To let the Holy Spirit bring change to you and through you to others. See, Jesus is not fearful of empowering people who are not qualified. Remember Peter? The one who rejected Jesus and abandoned him in the hour of his greatest need? But Peter grew and he received and he pursued the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God changed him and changed millions of people through him. Jesus says, whoever believes in me will do the works I am doing. And how did he do the works? Didn't do them out of, he did them by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Whoever believes, do we believe that? See, there are gifts from God, your Father, for you. They are handpicked for you to wear. A ring and a robe and sandals that fit you and you alone. Imagine the joy God has when we receive the treasure that is already ours when we choose to follow him. We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.